The Ringer's music critic Rob Harvilla curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello, and welcome back into the Prestige TV podcast feed. I almost bought a celebratory bottle of very expensive tequila for this podcast, and then was suddenly <laughs> deterred. But I'm here to talk about the penultimate episode of the halfway season, of the final season of Better Call Saul. I'm Joanna Robinson. I'm here with Ben Lindbergh. Hi, Ben. Hi. It's time to tie off your bleeding leg stump, because <laughs> you and I are going to have a little talk. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you think I could do a whole pod and, and not bleed out? <laughs> <laughs> Let's find out. From a hacked off foot, only one way to find out. Okay. <laughs> so as you know, in the Prestige TV podcast feed, we got a lot going on. It is, we are in the thick of it in the uh, Emmys of el- eligibility window. I'm going to actually talk about awards eligibility in, in a bit. There's a lot going on. So Atlanta, as we've mentioned, as Charles and Van breaking down Atlanta every week. Sean talking about Barry with Bill Hader. Great stuff every week. And then We Own the City, another sort of... All in. I think we're hitting our groove in the prestige feed in terms of like just digging into a show week by week rather than sort of scattershot trying to follow everything. So uh, those are some great shows that you can dig into and hear conversations around. This is our second to last time that we'll be meeting about this. But we're about to hop. Ben, I don't know if Mallory told you, but we're going to be drafting you. I'm sure she did. We're going to be talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi over the Ringerverse uh, (laughs) feed. And we can't talk about Star Wars without Ben Lindbergh. So Ben will be on there to do some lore master stuff. Can't wait. For us over there. So we won't even have a, a break, Ben. You'll just be stuck with me <laughs> for, for perpetuity. Yeah, we'll just have a little Obi-Wan interlude between our it. Better Call Saul half seasons. So today we're here to talk about season six, episode six, the aforementioned Axe and the Grind. Directed by, okay, got a new pronunciation <laughs> of, a, of a long favorite yeah. actor and sometime director. Giancarlo Esposito is how you yes. pronounce this actor. and. Uh, director of this episode he plays Gus Fring on the show as you know but he also directed this episode I was listening to the insider podcast and I had to pause it and slack Ben and be like oh my god did you know this have you heard me mispronounce this name I'm right there with you I went and looked I mean he's been on late night shows where they said it the way that we were saying it but yeah then I did find a video where he introduced himself just to confirm <laughs> and yes it is indeed Esposito Who Esposito knew? so it's Jennifer Esposito and <laughs> right. Giancarlo Esposito 
I was tweeting about this and some some listeners said that um, there, I guess there's a really good conversation he had with Mark Marin about the pronunciation of his name. That podcast episode, I was going to listen to it, but it is a um, like a paywall locked episode. So I did not listen uh-huh. to it. But if you are a Marin devotee and you want to hear Giancarlo talk about the pronunciation of his name more, apparently you could hear it there. The DP, as we mentioned, of all the even episodes this season of, of Better Call Saul is Paul Donaghy. He's like the longtime veteran DP of the show. First time writer, I should say, on this episode, Ariel Levine. So. Multiple time co-writer. Yes, first time, first solo script. Okay, so... Even before I listened to Chris and Andy talk about this for 30 minutes on the wash this week, I had a section (laughs) in the notes here titled expectations. So that's where we're going to start, because here we are. I think for the last couple of weeks, you and I have been like, well, surely it's going to like really ramp up next week or surely it's going to blah, blah. And it's a conversation in the wider fandom. The Reddit boards are sort of choked with this question. And Chris and Andy chewed it over in their you know customary thoughtful manner on their show, which is that I think all of us had an expectation that in a final season and especially in a split season where we're ramping up to a break, that there would be more momentum than perhaps we're feeling right now uh, over the last few episodes. Some people will go so far as to call it like boring, something like that. I'm not in, I'm not there yet at all. Mm-hmm. But um, so I don't I don't want to um, anyone to misunderstand me. But I do think it's worth having a little chat about when something is split like this or when we're in a final season like this, what we expect from the pace, what we expected to accomplish in the first half of a final season, et cetera. Ben, what are your your thoughts? Yeah, I think a lot of the concern comes from the fact that we can see the finish line now and it's getting close and Mm -hmm. we're counting down the hours they have left to tell the story. And maybe we're making mental comparisons with the final season of Breaking Bad, which we all remember just being frenetic at the end. And I think season five of Saul sort of coached us to expect that, right? Because finally the streams crossed. We had the lawyer storyline and the cartel Mm storyline coming together. Mm -hmm. Things were picking up. We were getting lots of action. And I think there was maybe the expectation that that would continue or that that pace would even pick up through the first half of this season so far. And that hasn't really happened, at least consistently. I think we were both surprised that they took Nacho off the board as early as they did, right? And I think you could critique just how long we are taking to set up D-Day here. And I hope that come next week, we'll be saying this was worth the wait and that this is the last episode when we'll be talking about it being sort of slow. Personally, I'm not there on it being boring either. I kind of go back to what I said in our first episode about having almost total trust in this creative team and not feeling the normal last season anxiety about how are they going to tie this up? Are they going to yeah. bleed out? <laughs> you know, is the is the leg stump of this story going to be stanched? <laughs> but I don't want to just be better call all apologists and say they can do no wrong, right? If we get to the end and it turns out that that faith was misplaced, I'll certainly say so. I just don't find it to be boring on a moment-to-moment basis. I'm still Mm -hmm. sort of savoring these characters and being in this world. Like, look, we get the extended montage of Howard getting ready for work and making coffee, right, which we'll talk about in a minute. You could summarize that scene as Howard gets dressed and makes coffee. Not really riveting stuff, but there's so much going on there that it's teaching us something about the characters. Maybe it's also preparing us for what's to come. So you have to be pretty invested in the show to pick up on or care about these things. And I'm not saying that if you think it's slow, it's just because you're not paying attention. You know, you're (laughs) doing Better Call Saul wrong. Mm -hmm. It is sort of slow. And I think that's a valid reading. And there have been times in earlier seasons when I felt that slowness, too, especially back in the Chuck era. 
Yeah. But now, just every little tidbit we're getting combined with the anticipation, in a way, it makes it more frustrating because we hear at the end of this episode, it happens today. We've been waiting for that day for so long. But that anticipation, because I know that's coming, because I trust that there is a climax coming, I'm just willing to wait and take what we're given for now. I think the Howard getting ready intro is extremely rich. But yeah. there were other moments, like in this episode, there's a scene where... Mike talks to Tyrus, right, about mm-hmm. like the distribution of, of men and, and who they're watching and who they're not. And before he does that, he just takes a slow, leisurely walk through the laundry. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, did we need the long walk through the laundry? Like, and I don't I don't mean to be an inattentive watcher because I do like that not just Saul, but Breaking Bad would do this like a slow down, a like let's let's savor the visuals, let's just meditate in the moment. But I think if, there's just been a few episodes in a row where we're like, okay, like maybe this could have been a shorter episode, or could mm-hmm. these have been all put together in one episode or two episodes or something like that. So um, I think these are questions. I think these are valid questions worth watching. I think um, this is still one of the best shows on television. Obviously, I think I did. I try not to let my expectations or my speculations get in the way of my enjoyment of something. But I think I did expect that like somehow everything pre-Breaking Bad would be wrapped up in this first half of the season or, you Mm -hmm. know, like I had a lot of thoughts. And to be clear, no one making the show promise us that in any way, shape or form. So just because I thought maybe the back half would just be Gene or I thought maybe the back half would be like the plot of of breaking bad and gene or something like that Which doesn't is still mean, in play right you know or at least yeah, partly. It, yeah it could be it could be but like if it, it still feels like there's a lot to do maybe there's a lot to do and it will just be the most frenetic and 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 uh, <laughs> yeah. adrenaline racing yeah. episode we um, wish for a slower paced episode perhaps. exactly so so we'll get to all of that they we'll talk about sort of next week on when we get to it and and we'll give people a chance to jump off. But let's start with, there's just like two cold opens in this episode. There's Mm -hmm. the Kim cold open and then there's the Howard cold open. So we'll start with the Kim cold open. Um, On the Insider podcast, they talked about uh, how there was originally an entirely different cold open and they decided sort of to change it to this one. We got an email from, from a listener, Chris, who, you know, mentioned that, of course, we've seen Kim and her mom before. In this cold open, we see a shoplifting incident and her mom, you know, uh, revealing her moral qualities and uh, and sort of snagging the the earrings for, for Kim anyway. In the previous one, we saw, like, good girl Kim coming out of a cello lesson, I think, uh, not wanting to get in the car with her mom because she thought she had been drinking. She was late yes. to pick her up and she thought she'd been drinking. That was in season five, episode six, Wexler v. Goodman. Chris's really good question here. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. this speaks to the earlier section is, did we learn anything new about the Kim, Kim's mom dynamic? And if so, what do you feel like you learned about? And like, how does that inform how you're thinking about the larger show? Yeah, that's an interesting discussion. And they had that on the Insider podcast, too. And it sounded like they had some misgivings about this teaser, that they reworked it, that their concern was that they were just going to have this be too simplistic, you know, just deliver Kim's origin story just wrapped up with a bow. This right. is why Kim is the way she is today, because of this scene, because of this incident. dynamic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't want that to be the case either. And I think this does kind of toe that line. So, look, we see young Kim with the foot tapping, right? So this is a through line. We're seeing a, a mannerism that she has as an adult, that she had as a kid. 
I did want to compliment just the acting, the performances in these scenes. Like this is the the best young actress playing a kid version of an adult character since Matilda Lawler was young Kirsten on Station Eleven a couple <laughs> so, months ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, way back then. But kudos to Kim Beth Hall, yeah. <laughs> and also Kim's mom, the actor playing her, Beth Hoyt just perfect casting and acting because I was questioning like is that Racy Horn? I mean it really A lot of people like thought it was. Yeah. I thought it, a lot of people thought it was her in like light prosthetics but. Yeah. yeah. So you sort of see I mean we know where Kim gets her acting skills right? Clearly from her mother mm-hmm. her ability to keep her cool to maintain this facade to hustle people right? Like Kim's mom hustles the manager the way Kim later hustles Lalo and others. So I think what this raised in my mind Why is Kim doing this? Is this telling us that Kim always had this in her from the start, that she always just had this rebellious streak, this law-breaking streak? Or is the point that, well, she's acting out, actually, because she wants to be corralled. She wants her mom to take a firm hand here. She wants her to stop her and lay down the law and discipline her. Or is it a bit of both? Because I really did think it was kind of heartbreaking that moment where she takes her mom's hand, right? She wants to be parented, it seems like, in this moment. And then as soon as Kim's mom starts laughing and making fun of the manager, Kim immediately disengages her hand. <laughs> and she's just right back to, oh, I have no no guardian here. There's That's no so one. funny. I thought yeah. her mom dropped her hand. Oh, well, maybe um, it's mutual. Maybe it's a bit of both. I thought but... her mom was like, I thought her mom saw the hand grab as like a, oh, good move. We're still doing this Could be, performance yeah. for the manager. And then they round the corner and she drops her hand. But right. either way, it's heartbreaking. But I think that... Right. That I, that that concept of Kim wants to be parented huge. Like the this idea of kids acting out because they want attention, good or negative attention, is is I think a big part of you know moves like this as a kid. But also, yeah, just wanting your parent to parent you. Yeah, and she does crave some attention from her mom and some affection, and she gets it here because the mom says, "I didn't know it had it in you." Right. So it's kind of like. Kim's mom is a grifter like the grifter who wanders into Jimmy's dad's store, right? And mm-hmm. tells him they're wolves and sheep in this world, kid. The shopkeeper is like Jimmy's pushover dad. So both of them have been shaped in this way yeah. at around the same age, seemingly. They both learn the same lesson. And it still seems sort of like Kim thinks that scams or grifts are expressions of love, right? Like this is how you connect with people because this is how she connected with her mom by shoplifting. So maybe this is how she's now expressing this affection that she has for Jimmy. That's why they bonded over this. That's just how she thinks relationships work seemingly. So that's really sad. I don't know that that is that enlightening because we knew that Kim just had this fever for the grift. It's been in her all along. So maybe we could have just inferred this. We could have imagined this. So you could say that we didn't need this, that it's a little heavy handed. It's over illustrating the origin story. But it is just really a a poignant scene. And it does tell you a little bit about how Kim became who she is now. So, you know, does she even want that corrective impulse anymore? The person who's going to come in like Mm. Jimmy does at the end of this episode and say, well, we'll live to fight another day. It's not happening. And Kim rejects that. So I don't think she even wants someone to come in and say, no, I'm going to keep you on the straight and narrow, the literal straight and narrow road here. I think she is fully interested in just going the other way. In a little bit, I do want to revisit that idea of, of the grift as an act of love. I think that is a key point to 
something worth exploring in the Kim and Jimmy relationship in this episode. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, this may have been a, a throwaway line, a coincidence, but the manager mentions that the earrings are from the Starlight collection, uh-huh. which made me think of the Kaylee scene later in this episode. Like, that's kind of Mike's expression of love for Kaylee, right? That he gives her this telescope. He's walking her through seeing the stars. That's kind of the childhood you want, I guess, where you have your mom standing next to you pointing the telescope with you and you have your pop pop on the phone telling you what you're seeing like that's the starlight that she is seeing whereas Kim at roughly the same age her starlight is a pair of earrings that she shoplifted and and has continued to wear into adulthood so yeah but I mean I'm not sure that binary is perfect in terms of Kaylee because of course like her pop-ups across the street and lying <laughs> about being in Chatt- Chattanooga <laughs> and we know that like yeah mice gonna vanish from her life very mm-hmm. soon yeah, from young right. Kaylee's life. So yeah, so maybe it's an illusion in both cases. I want to visit this theory that that a couple people have emailed us about over the a few weeks. This Kim behind bars theory, which like if you pay attention, I think a lot of this comes from the fact that Kim has been doing business in the El Camino, which I think has bars on its windows. So like a lot <laughs> of shots have featured bars in front of Kim's face, and I wasn't sure like how intentional that was. If we feel like that's foreshadowing Kim being in jail at the end of the series or the end of the split season or something like that. But uh, so I was on the lookout in this episode and there is a shot as she's going into the office of um, like the newly decorated office (laughs) that Francesca (laughs) has worked over of Kim's shadow in the shadow of the level blinds of the window sort of Mm. projected onto the wall. So it's Kim again behind horizontal bars, but bars in that scene. And so I was like, okay, well maybe, I don't know. I, I don't like that as a possibility of an ending, but we, she does start this episode. Young Kim starts this episode in custody. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, just, just floating the Kim behind bars, uh, theory <laughs> that is out there raging, raging through the yes. fandom. There's also, we got an email. I've seen a lot of anti Kim sentiment and I just want to say for the record, I think you can agree with me. This is a pro Kim podcast. <laughs> we are not standing for Kim hate. Uh-huh. I am concerned for Kim. But I am not against, I mean, she could do something to change my mind for sure. But I care deeply about Kim Wexler and her, I mean, that's why our email is kimwexlerlives at gmail.com. Right. I care about her and her well-being. Um, how, how are your Kim feelings these days, Ben? Maybe that's part of the purpose of the opener with young Kim, just to refresh our sympathy for this character, because this is an episode where she runs off the rails. I mean, at the beginning of the season, when we first started doing these podcasts and we talked about what might happen to Kim, I said, well, maybe she doesn't die, but maybe she just becomes such a a morphed version of the character we knew and love Mm. that we no longer feel for her the way that we have. Mm -hmm. Maybe we want her to be put out of her misery in some way, not necessarily dying, but being disbarred, being imprisoned before she can get herself into even worse trouble. Will we still feel for her the way that we used to? So maybe is that scene reminding us this is where Kim comes from. Maybe that's putting your thumb on the scale, the scales of justice a little too heavily there. We've been living with Kim for several years and several seasons here, so there's a pretty deep bond (laughs) between her and most of the audience. But I think it's hard to lose that sympathy for her when you see where she came from, right? So maybe it's sort of the sob story, like, hey, if you were raised in these circumstances, then you would have turned out like Kim too. I don't know if that is part of the reason why that scene was there. Kim's got a cold open, Howard's is even colder, I would would argue. (laughs) Though interestingly, you know, 
I'm not sure how much of this is like a directorial flair choice or is in the script or whatever, but I just thought the establishing shots of things in both the Kim cold open and the Howard cold open of like hangers and like, you know, just it, it's shot very similarly. Um, both the characters are in cages of, of a kind uh, yes. in, in these, in these opens. But we find out that Howard, uh, as alluded to in his therapy session a couple episodes ago, uh, his marriage is on the rocks. He's sleeping in like sort of a, a guest cabana must be nice. <laughs> um, he's not on the couch, but he's effectively on the couch. And we see his sort of like long morning routine of, of making a beautiful latte for his mm-hmm. estranged wife who we meet for the first time. I do want to note quickly that uh, Howard drinks chamomile tea, Yes. Not coffee. That may come into play later. <laughs> I mean, I really loved this sequence. I think it establishes a lot in a very little amount of time, very little dialogue. I like that his estranged wife is not painted as a monster. Mm-hmm. That it's even sadder than a relationship where the couple is like at each other's throats and fighting is this she just so clearly doesn't care anymore and not doesn't care in in a monstrous inhumane way because she's like, Oh, I thought you were going to get a new mattress. You know, she cares that his mattress is nice. She, you know, she, I think she cares enough about him, but she does not care at all about any of his love languages that he is trying to offer (laughs) to her. And that is just, deeply sad what did you think yes howard's love language is espresso <laughs> it's not being reciprocated please here. <laughs> patrick fabian if you want to come to my house and make me some foam art i will gladly receive it <laughs> yeah the peace yeah. sign to go with yeah. the namaste a license plate <laughs> howard i love you yeah this is a devastating scene even before the coffee when he's dressing himself and buttoning his own buttons the contrast with kim and jimmy's morning routine mm. is strong right because yeah. they dress each other yeah it's It's a a mutually destructive relationship in their case, but they have someone to button their buttons, right? So they don't have to look in the mirror and button themselves up. And Howard is just generally a buttoned up person. And in this scene, he is too. I mean, Howard, like in every interaction, Howard always looks like he's giving a presentation. You know, he has these finely choreographed hand movements. He has this uh, voice where he's projecting and everything is very controlled. But you can see that under the surface, he's hurting here. I think much like the Kim opener, maybe fostering our sympathies for Kim, this scene serves to foster our sympathies for Howard, right, with what may await him next week. We should remember, Howard's not a complete baby face. You know, we have seen him do some reprehensible things. We've seen him be a bad dude at times, maybe not as bad as Saul slash Jimmy think he is or as Kim thinks he is. But he has been disrespectful and dismissive to Kim many times. And we don't know what happened in this relationship, right? It's not necessarily the case that Howard is just the victim here. Of course, of course. For all we know, the wife is out on Howard because of something he did, right? So we're coming in midstream here. But yeah, he has the fancy coffee machine, Spiros's coffee machine from Billions. He makes the peace sign in the coffee. (laughs) She doesn't even seem to notice it. She doesn't acknowledge it. Slops it on the counter. Ah, His clean counter (laughs) just dripping all over. Just really just devastating. And then she walks out without saying goodbye. And they're just planning their routine. I'm going to go here. You're going to go there. Do you want me to come? No, I got it. You know, they're just synchronizing their schedules. There's just no affection, at least on her part. Totally. I thought the line read where she was like, I'll be over at this 
these people's houses tonight. So you've got the house to yourself in that sort of like, <laughs> lucky you have your other house to yourself, but yeah. you feel the emptiness yeah. of that for him, that he's going to go home to a cold, empty house. Yeah, he doesn't want to be on his own in this house. And then you see her walk away down this long hallway with her steps just echoing yeah. to and from this kind of cavernous space. I think the way that... Giancarlo Esposito set the camera so you see that hallway and the kitchen as like separate spaces. You watch her come in that separate space and leave that separate space. And we stay with him as he wipes up the the foam from the counter. Mm -hmm. It's all it's all very sad. You're right. He's not an innocent little puppy dog. It's totally true. But they're doing the work that they need to do to get me to care without like hitting it too hard. You know, Mm -hmm. it's still a fairly quick scene. And Howard's not like rescuing kittens from trees or whatever. Do you know what I mean? He's he's yeah. just like he's probably dealing with some consequences of his own behavior. You're right, but it's yeah. you know there's something about the shoe buffer machine that Ugh. is just extremely sad to me. <laughs> yeah, it's just all about keeping up appearances yes. and having this high collar while all of these things are going on under the scenes. And it just lets you know that, yeah, he has a home life, but it is not a rich or rewarding one right now. And so all he has is the office. And that's why in his therapy session, he starts with the office and he has to be reminded, no, this is not just about work. What's going on in your personal life? He doesn't have much of a personal life now, or at least not one he wants to talk about or dwell on, which if he has some sort of professional downfall next week, that just makes that even more agonizing, I think, knowing that he has nothing to fall back on. And getting the reminder here, not only do we learn that he is a tea drinker, not a coffee drinker, and an uncaffeinated tea drinker. Chamomile, yes. (laughs) We'll get into that later. But also the reminder that he hasn't been sleeping. You know, he replaced his mattress, but it's not just the mattress that is making it hard for him to sleep. So all of that kind of goes to his mental state, as they say in court, which will probably come into play sometime soon on Better Call Saul. All right. So we're going to get to... uh... (laughs) caffeinated habits and and BPMs in just a second. But before we leave Howard here, there's this PI Mm check-in, which I think is significant. Only So it sets up this fact, you know, like Howard hired this PI after that erstwhile sort of like boxing match situation who's been trailing Jimmy and Kim. Jimmy and Kim are aware that a PI is trailing them. I'm going to jump ahead. I was going to bring this up later, but I'll bring it up now. Do you think this PI is actually working for Jimmy and Kim? (laughs) It's a great question. I think you see in the scene when he lingers over Jimmy taking out his fat stacks and he sort of just steers Howard toward, hey, this is not normal. This is not above board and kosher, right? That would not necessarily be an unrealistic thing for the PA to say if this is all That's on the level way and on the up and up. He says it. He was yeah. like, he was like, can you think? Of a legitimate reason why someone would, and he has the exact amount, he's like 20 grand in cash. Like, he says he saw four stacks, like, I don't know, I'm not a PI, but if I saw four stacks of cash, I wouldn't be like, oh, clearly, 20 grand. <laughs> That's what that stacks of cash is. I mean, it really feels like this guy is is working for Jimmy and Kim. Yeah, me. you wonder about the mechanics of that because it would not have been hard to anticipate that Howard might have gone to the PI. We could imagine Jimmy making that connection, but then... Does Jimmy know which PI he's going to call because they have used PIs before at HHM? Or does he get to the PI after he's hired? Or does he put a plant there? Does he pay him off? I don't know exactly how that would work. And I don't think it's necessary for this to be the case. We can run through a little later on how we envision D-Day going. I think there are ways that they could pull off this scam without having the PI in their pocket. But it's definitely suggestive. It's a little bit suspicious. The fact that 
they felt like they know knew exactly what the Kettlemans would do just by their first, you know, it feels like a lot of this plan is hinging on them feeling like they know what someone's going to do next. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Behavior. And so I could mm-hmm. see them in the universe of this show. I could see something as simple as like planting an ad somewhere that Howard would see it or something like that. Or your, your explanation is so much simpler. They have an in-house pi that they use at hamlin hamlin and mcgill and kim knows him you know like because in a way like we're kind of kept in the dark about a lot of aspects of the scene but we've seen some of it the curtain is beginning to be pulled back so we see the actor who's playing the judge in this episode right so if they've had an actor impersonating a pi all along let's say and we have not been privy to that i would feel a little left out i would feel a little manipulated as a viewer at this point and if they were paying off the PI, I mean, I guess they still have the, the cash in Lalo's bag, right? Just hanging around in the closet. So maybe they finally found a use for that. But in a way, I, I kind of like the idea that they've just anticipated where Howard will go. They're just seeing so many steps ahead here. And maybe they will fail to foresee something next week. But that they're able to anticipate this just because they're students of the characters of this show. All right. We're going to break down exactly what we think this grift might be. Um, I think... I th- I think we figured it out, but um, (laughs) whether or not, as you say, whether or not it goes to plan, we shall see. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Let's take this next step, which is a visit to the doctor, right? We, we yeah. mentioned at the end of last week's episode that we had seen shady veterinarian extraordinaire Dr. Caldera in the mm-hmm. next time on. So he is, he is back. He's got a little black book. Mm-hmm. That is encoded with a cipher. Fun fact that cipher is real. Not only like I heard that on the Insider podcast, but I had already seen Redditors like start to break down. <laughs> of course. Something I love about the Better Call Saul Reddit is like the Breaking Bad Reddit was so intensive, but that show, the fandom around that show was so much more intensive. And what I yeah. love is that even though a lot of the broader cultural scrutiny of Better Call Saul has has fallen away from the Breaking Bad days, um, that core <laughs> and hardcore core. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna freeze frame every page of this little black book and, and decode a cipher that is really just names that are probably just like production staff, honestly. Mm-hmm. You love to see it, honestly. I love I love that level of engagement. I think it's incredible. Yeah, and they've been through the fire with breaking bad. They've learned from that series and they've applied all of those lessons <laughs> to Better Call Saul. Okay, but so we're we're testing a substance on on Jimmy here. Jimmy is a human guinea pig here, and there's a few few key phrases here right he says the skin's dry where you put the stuff on which makes it seem like this substance is topical right Mm -hmm. 
Um, when asking about the effects of it, again, this is like, as you say, the half draw of the curtain, right? We're getting yeah. some hints here. What will this drug do to you? How will it impact you? And he says, depends how used to caffeine you are. And then we think about Howard's <laughs> chamomile tea and we get worried. Yep. Like two Red Bulls on an empty stomach is the impact here. And that there's an hour or two of efficacy and it will not show up on a blood panel. And it all ends with Jimmy's pupils sort of being blown out as they look in the mirror. So essentially what we can conclude here is that they are testing a topical drug that they will somehow slip to. This is the part of the plan that I'm like, I cannot believe this is happening. But <laughs> this is the long con of the whispers about drug use mm -hmm. is that they are going to drug Howard in, in a moment of crisis, and we'll get to that in a second, to make it seem like he is high. He is at least right. as jittery as one might be on two Red Bulls, maybe more since he's a chamomile guy. Mm -hmm. Um Ben, oh my God, how do you feel about this development in the plan? Yeah, they're framing him as a drug user by actually drugging him. Oh my <laughs> so God. it is devious. It is fiendish, but you can certainly see it playing out because Cliff is convinced as it is, right? Yeah. So he sees the, the pupils dilated. He sees Howard looking a little off his game here, just on a, a super extreme caffeine high. You can see how this would all fall apart. And we can maybe imagine what the precipitating incident here, right, is mm -hmm. because we've been seeing the actor who has been playing the judge who will be the arbitrator mediator in this case. And so the, the wrench has been thrown into that plan. The cast has been thrown into it, as we see at the end of this episode. Mm -hmm. But... All the groundwork has been laid here, seemingly. Howard knows that Jimmy took out a bunch of cash. We've got framed photos, faked forged photos of Jimmy with the judge impersonator, right? So somehow those photos have to get into Howard's hands. Now, that's the part I'm not completely clear on, or at least one of the parts. If the PI is in the pay of Jimmy and Kim. That's why I think the PI is working for Jimmy and Kim. Then it's easy. Yeah. Right? Then he just slips that in with all the other photos. If not, though, I think it could still work, right? Maybe there's a courier. Maybe Jimmy and Kim, they still have friends in the mailroom. Who knows what it is? But maybe someone slips the photo to Howard in this moment when perhaps he's already high. <laughs> you know, it's a high pressure, high yeah. anxiety moment. He sees this. He's already primed because he's seeing Jimmy behind every corner now, right? He knows that Jimmy is scheming against him. So if he sees this, it'll be confirmation bias. He'll say, aha. I know he has this money. He's giving it to the judge. There's something shady happening here. And then maybe he brings those accusations out in the room. And meanwhile, he's ranting like a lunatic, right? It's the, the chicanery moment again, right? Yeah. Where Jimmy makes Chuck look like he has no credibility. Yeah. It seems like they're laying the same sort of trap for Howard here. Speaking of the incredible work of the Better Call Saul Redditors, one of them has broken down the post-its on the on the board of mm. uh, Kim and Jimmy's plan, and it is incredible content. Um, if you if you feel like exploring this, um, on Reddit the post is called like Kim and Jimmy's Board of Mischief. All main points. I always feel like an idiot when I read out um, a redditor's usernames because they're <laughs> usually incomprehensible. So I will spare myself that, but but I do want to give them full credit for this because there's just like fun pictogram stuff like. For last week when Kim was getting information from the character Viola, there's like a Viola 
drawn mm. on a post-it as like to indicate I will get the information. Fi-. Like it's just re- like the production design team had a really fun time just like devising these post-its. But every single step of the plan is laid out there. And so like to zoom back to the beginning, right, we plant the drugs on Howard at the club. We involve the Kettleman's to undermine Howard to Cliff. We station an altercation with Wendy, the sex worker, in fr- again in front of Cliff. We bait Howard into hiring a PI, and is the PI working for them? Or as you say, are they just going to like send the photos and claim it was from his PI? I don't know. Whether or not mm-hmm. the PI is working for them is a question mark, right? Find out the identity of the judge from Viola. Hire someone to impersonate him. As you mentioned, we saw this actor this week. Stage a photo where it looks like Jimmy is paying off the judge. Make Howard think the judge is dirty. Drug Howard uh, <laughs> in a way that makes it look like he's on coke. And then he wilds yeah. out, accuses, as you say, accuses the judge of bribery, a venerated judge of bribery in front of Cliff at this mediation meeting that uh, Saul or Jimmy used Francesca to find out location of how to dial in so he could listen, so he could have the joy of listening to Howard and <laughs> right. his own career yeah. over, over the speakerphone, right? They want to gloat. They want to be there. Yeah. I Okay. I think from the start, we've meant to feel uneasy about this scheme. And I have, of course, from the start, Jimmy feels uneasy about it. Kim is determined that we're supposed to feel all that tension. This, I don't know why this step over the line of like actually drugging him is is making me feel really queasy. But that's that's where I am. I'm just like, this is this is a bridge too far. It's all a bridge too far. But this is like, <laughs> there's something fun about watching Jimmy like steal the car, put the cone out, like all this sort of stuff yeah. like that. But I'm like, you're going to drug a man yeah. and a man that we know <laughs> drinks chamomile tea. <laughs> I know. It's funny that you use that phrase, a bridge too far. I was going to bring that up too, because this is feeling more like Operation Market Garden than D-Day to me. You know, this <laughs> is going to be a bridge too far, right down to them having a little picnic in the garden outside HHM the night before. So it does feel like things are going to go wrong somehow here. I'm worried about Howard, not just professionally, but on a personal level, like on Physically, a health level. Yeah. You know, I mean, he Is hasn't he gonna been have sleeping. a coronary like what's could be happen? right. Which would be, I mean, kind of eerie given what actually happened to Bob Odenkirk during the filming of this season. But you could see something like that happening, like sleep deprived, under stress, low caffeine tolerance, Howard. At this moment, that's his professional undoing. The only thing he has going for him is falling apart. Maybe they get the dosage wrong. Maybe he's just not ready for this. Maybe he keels over, right? And maybe that prompts an investigation. That prompts all kinds of guilt on the part of Jimmy and Kim. I mean, they don't want to kill him. Right. (laughs) So if things go that far, then that sets up maybe an investigation, right? Dr. Caldera, he says that they're not going to detect the substance on a local blood panel, right? But if someone dies, who knows? Maybe they bring in the out-of-town experts, right? And they detect something here. So maybe they actually could get implicated. I don't know that it has to be a death. I'm just saying that that kind of thing is in play here. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely having flashbacks to succession and me being like, does Kendall die, right? So like, I don't want to like get too wrapped up in my own tendencies um <laughs> obviously these are the stakes that this world exists in this show existence you know like Absolutely, nacho yeah. dies of course howard's not on that side of the story he's not on the cartel side of the story so we weren't really expecting yeah, this or even going to breaking bad i mean you know brock with the ricin or like you know yeah Walt watching jane yeah. die right i mean there are echoes of all of these things here potentially there's been a long time theory and i don't quite know the exact genesis of it that howard might take his own life just because things yeah 
get too bleak and upsetting for him. Um, we shall see what happens. And we'll have a little bit more to say about this in the like end of this episode when we talk about like the next time on. Right. I was thinking of that, too, because I think someone on Reddit pointed this out in Breaking Bad season three, episode two. This is after Skylar finds out what Wall is up to. Saul tells him we live to fight another day which is the same thing he says to Kim at the end of this episode, right, when he's trying to talk her into calling off D-Day. And then he says to Walt, just promise me you won't hang yourself in the closet, right? Yeah. And then he goes out and sits in the car and puts his head down. Is he thinking of a particular yeah. incident here in his yeah. past? Retroactively, could Howard do that in the closet where we saw the hangers to open this episode? Could be. I hope Howard's okay. Well, the good news is those hangers were on like a a portable uh, (laughs) clothes rack because he's in the guest house. So, I mean, that brings us back to something that they said on the Insider. I think it was Peter Gould who said this on the Insider podcast in terms of that that magic trick that Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad does of making everything feel like it was planned all along, even when it wasn't. He said one of the tricks, you know, one of the tricks we know is they've got all these players on the board and they sort of pluck them out when they need them. We'll get to sort of the film students in a second, right? But, um... The other is, he said, what have we said in the past that we can use in the future, right? Mm-hmm. So a line like that, don't hang yourself in the closet, is something that they could earmark for, we should make that pay off uh, yes. at some point in the future. Not knowing exactly how, not holding themselves to exactly what that's going to mean, but like maybe it could, Yeah, you know? And before we move on from Dr. Caldera for good, another thing about this scene, first of all, love that he loves being a vet. He has his wall of happy pets. (laughs) Animals are his life. Yeah. Love that we get a dachshund for the second straight episode. Very into that. Also, the little black book, that's a a Priester egg, right, Mm -hmm. from that first scene of the season. So we get another reveal there, which suggests that Saul acquires that book, buys that book from him at some point. And we get the best quality vacuum card. So we know, and this seemed to be a big deal to Peter Gould on the Insider Pod. So funny. This is finally how Saul knows about Ed, but Mike doesn't because Mike is not in the scene, which was not something I personally was really stressing about. This was like a huge problem that they wanted to solve (laughs) for themselves. How do we? They were like, finally, we figured it out. I wasn't really on tenterhooks here thinking, how did he know? I just figured, well, you know, he knows he's in the Albuquerque underworld. But here we get that reveal, which I think there's a fine line between over explaining, like, how does this character know that thing? Where did he get the Statue of Liberty blowy thingy? You know, like, we don't necessarily need all of those things spelled out, but There is something in Gilgan and Gould, I think, that likes to allow us to plot those steps after the fact, even though they acknowledge that they don't know where these things are going when they start out. They figure it out as they go. They still do want all of the puzzle pieces to fall into place at the end. So this was apparently an important puzzle piece for them. It's funny, like, what we weigh and what we don't weigh, because, like, I wasn't weighing that at all. And I'm like, okay, I'm glad that they feel at peace with that. And I, I didn't really care, but okay. Meanwhile... The Francesca thing, which has been a question of like, how do we get from the Francesca we met in, I think it was what, season three of um, Better Call Saul to the Francesca we meet in Breaking Bad. And, you know, their their explanation of this episode is very much like, this is it. This is, we're seeing her fall right now. And again, mm-hmm. I'm just sort of like, I don't feel like I, again, there's, there's many more episodes to go. Maybe we're going to be spending a lot more time with Francesca. I don't know. I don't know that I want to necessarily, but I still don't know that this feels like a satisfactory, like, oh, she got talked into getting on this burner phone and doing this thing for him because he's paying her a lot of money or some guy pissing all over her interior decorating (laughs) is like what made her 
you know, fundamentally change her character between these two seasons. I don't know. Yeah. These, these Poor Francesca. I mean, we know that she has a few years ahead still with Saul <laughs> before we actually meet her in Breaking Bad. So a few years of exposure to Saul Goodman, that could change anyone, I think. But I did enjoy that scene. I guess we're stepping ahead a little here. But yeah. Francesca, I mean, she missed her calling, I think, as an interior designer. <laughs> she could have stayed on that path. That's a lot of taupe. I don't know. It's a little... No, you're not into it? Okay. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's definitely better than what we've seen in Breaking Bad. Sure. Absolutely. Like, way classier. But yeah. um, I think it lacks a certain imagination is all I'll say. About I Francesca. like what she's done with the place. Okay. I don't think it's right for Jimmy, though. And yeah. I think when Kim sees it, oh, you yeah. can sort of see that on her face, right? Like, this might be a good look for Kim's office, potentially. But she knows it's not what she laid out for the Saul that she had yeah. in her mind. And so in this scene, you know, when they step out to the alley... And we get the, first of all, the little glimpse of the old toilet in the dumpster, right? So that's still out there if anyone was wondering what happened to the toilet. The toilet that they probably should have left in the office so that yeah. that guy could have had a place to actually pee. That sure. could have been the water feature. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> you get, I think, the you know fancy, respectable-looking inner sanctum, and then you get the alley. Like, the inner sanctum is, is alley adjacent here. There's just a very thin line between the public facade of respectable Saul, such as it is, and just the alley lawyer out there. Mm-hmm. But when Francesca says after that conversation, we're not going to make a habit of this, right? <laughs> you know, And of course, that is the clue that, yes, they are going to make a habit of this. And they do their social engineering to get the call-in info for the Sandpiper meeting. And, you know, she thinks, oh, this is a, a one-off. <laughs> you know, I'm a little uneasy about this, but it, it won't be a regular thing. Oh, sweet summer child, right? Just give her a few years and she will be impersonating APD and calling Hank to tell him that Marie was in an accident, right? And in that scene in Breaking Bad, she says, you're going to have to start paying me more, which echoes Saul's, you know what I'm paying you in this scene. So you can see just the real-time coaching of how to sound, you know? I loved Odenkirk's. <laughs> performance in that scene it's just like yeah. classic comedy stuff from him and when she says we're not going to make out of this right he's like no, 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 no like just perfect delivery of mm-hmm. of this hustle that he's doing here yeah as you say we hopped we hop forward because we want to go back to sort of cliff and kim here right which is that when we saw kim at the end of last season and she's talking about the earliest grains of this plan she's justifying it by saying and and we We've seen a bit more of this with the pro bono work this season, but she justifies it by saying, if we get this sandpiper money, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a, you know, a system where I can do pro bono, like real good pro bono work in this community. That is what I'm going to do with this money. And so the fact that the writers of the show and Clifford made himself at Pigley Jr. having a significant role in this, <laughs> this final season offer her that without having to drug Howard (laughs) Hamlin. Mm -hmm. And she says, no, I'm going to keep on my, with this plan. We already suspected that, that it was her justification was bullshit, but now we have proof that it is bullshit, that she is literally offered a road to the future she wants without having to do this horrible thing. And Mm -hmm. it's not, it's just about her finding some ends to justify the means of what she wants to do, which is a crime. Uh, a big crime uh what like is that is that by is that offer like too obvious do you feel or do you feel like it's it's perfectly set up 
to, you know, like to have a character do a literal U-turn on a road. Like, how do you feel right. about that? Yeah. I mean, we see her in that courthouse scene really just caring about her client and arguing her case well. Like, she's good at this, you know? <laughs> so the fact that Cliff would offer her this position, that tracks, I think. And somehow she's found time, even while planning and being obsessed with Howard's downfall. Mm-hmm. She's worked 50 hours somehow to help this client at minimum wage. So there is still so- that side of her that does care about those things. And it reminds me, I mean, at the end of the Dr. Caldera scene, where Saul is lamenting that Dr. Caldera is walking away from this thriving side business he has here, right? He says he's raking it in day in, day out, passive income, minimal risk. I can't believe he's walking away from that. And Kim says, well, he knows what he wants. And so the question is, what does Kim want? And she makes a choice here. So in this courthouse scene, We see the reverberations of choices she's already made because there's the contrast between her courthouse coffee from the vending machine and Howard's fancy espresso. You know, it's just slopping into the cup. That's what she gave up. She gave up being on the partner track at the fancy law firm. And she chose the vending machine coffee so that she could do some good. She could help people. But clearly, it's not enough for her anymore. And so it reminds me of that scene. And I've quoted this before, but she turns on to the literal bad choice road. Remember back to season five, episode nine, that Mike monologue. We all make our choices. And those choices, they put us on a road. Sometimes those choices seem small, but they put you on the road. You think about getting off. But eventually you're back on it. The road we're on led us out to the desert and everything that happened there and straight back to where we are right now. And nothing, nothing can be done about that. And her road, she makes a very literal choice here. It's it's almost, you know, too obvious in its symbolism, if you can even call it symbolism. Right, right, right. She's driving toward justice for everyone, and she does a U-turn and says, no, that's not really what I want. I think it feels like a little on the nose for me. Mm -hmm. But those fatal and fateful choices have always been a hallmark of this world that that Gilligan and then Gilligan and Gould have created these moments where you're just like, if you had only just, I'm glad you flagged that line that she says he knows what he wants in in the Dr. Caldera scene, because ever since you told me about Kim's ponytail sort of reflecting her mood, like I was looking at her hair in that scene, that scene when she's like, you want to talk about like alleyway lawyering. Let's talk about like shady veterinarian uh, exam room drug trials like her. So yeah. she's got the ponytail, but it's like she's got pieces of it down and it is like low. The curls there, but it's like low. But then you cut to her in the courtroom arguing the case and the ponytail is high and tight. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's just sort of like this is, you know. I don't know. I'm on, I'm on Ponytail Watch. I think it's a fascinating place to be. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll, we'll see how it all pans out next week. I think the really important important thing that I want to go back to here is this question of the Jimmy and Kim love story. This is something that Chris and Andy have been banging the drum on and and I largely disagreed with them and I was trying to figure out why and how to articulate it. This idea that they did not feel like the love story of Jimmy and Kim was very rich in chemistry or explosively passionate or anything like that, that this was like that they were more pals, that it was like a marriage of of legal convenience more so than passionless or stuff like that. And I'm like, I get what you're saying here. Um, I, I get all of that. 
I do think that there can be a like an absolutely unbreakable connection that is not explicitly sexual and it is mm-hmm. something that I think these two characters have and it doesn't to me make their love story feel like not a real love story you know and there's this part where he like you know he's so proud of her he's so happy for her she's smiling wide because she's like yeah. so excited about this Jackson Mercer possibility and he, he grabs her and he smooches her and I guess yeah, it's like right. sort of one of the more moments of passions that we've seen from these two right and kind of a pure moment where they're actually celebrating something good instead of just hooking up as they're just like so turned on by their mutual scheming right and then we get that just immediate cut like a literal cut to (laughs) casper splitting wood so we don't get to linger and enjoy this embrace but that did stand out to me as hey no he's like legitimately happy for her there's something here maybe just beyond the fact that they want to manipulate people together okay so like I might be overthinking this but hey what else are we here for (laughs) but I think it's worth thinking about like what does Kim want from Jimmy and what does Jimmy want from Kim what I'm worried about is that what Kim is most attracted to is Saul not Jimmy and what Jimmy wants from Kim is what she wanted from her mom which is someone to like tell him no Tell him the no that he needs. And also, like, if you think about the earlier arc of the series and how that what all that Jimmy wanted was for his brother to see him as Jimmy and not slip a Jimmy. Right. Mm -hmm. That like he just wanted to be seen as like a worthy, a good lawyer, a worthy brother and not a con man. Right. And then he sort of is like, well, fuck it. Right. If you're Mm -hmm. not going to see me that way, I'm going to. But like, I think he also wants Kim to see him as Jimmy and not as Saul. But Kim is so excited by Saul and Mm -hmm. the prospect of building Saul, you know, and and he's more excited about pro bono Kim than he is about schemer (laughs) Kim. And so that's just like at cross purposes with each other in a way that really concerns me. One thing I was thinking about is like, we're wondering why Jimmy's leaning so far into Saul in these seasons of Breaking Bad that we've seen. And like, a reason could be something happens that breaks his heart or forever morally decays him or whatever it might be. But there's a part of me that wonders, like, is he clinging to Saul so much because Saul is Kim's creation and mm. it's a way for him to feel close to her or the man that she wanted him to be, which is this, like, exciting grifter mixing in the an adrenaline-fueled criminal world. Um, what do you think? Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't made that connection, but right. Maybe that's his way of, we don't know where Kim is during that Breaking Bad timeline, but maybe that's his way of honoring her, of trying to get her back, of just fulfilling what she wanted him to be. I like that idea. And I was just trying to figure out their psyches in these scenes because, you know, in that courthouse scene where Kim is talking to Cliff and he asks her how she left things with Howard, And she talks sincerely, it seems to me, about owing Howard and HHM a lot, even as she's trying to take them down. Is that just an instance of her putting on this front like her mom did in that scene and telling him what he wants to hear? Or does she actually feel that on some level? Like late in this episode, I I just I almost had to pause the episode and think, you know, Alan Sepinwall pointed out that that scene at the end when Kim turns around, it's reminiscent of when Kim got Jimmy an interview with Davis and Maine and he almost drove away from it. And then he came back ultimately for a while, although really he was working his way out of there. Kim is turning away irrevocably from the life she saw it. And I had to think like, 
why are they doing this again? You know, I had to remind myself, like, why are they doing this? Why are we going forward with D-Day? Because things are going so well for them right now. On the surface, it seems Kim is getting exactly what she wants. They have a bag of Lalo cash stashed away somewhere. (laughs) Jimmy's practice is thriving. Yeah. So it's not logical for them to continue down this path. Yeah, this is like Huell's point, right? Why why are you doing this? Yeah. Exactly, right. And so I guess you could say, well, this is a a failure of of writing of Better Call Saul character motivation. It just doesn't make sense. But I think it does make sense that they've told us that these are who these characters are, that they're not acting logically. That's okay. People in real life act illogically all the time. So it doesn't make sense for us that they are persisting in this. But it makes sense to them because of who they are and where they came from and what they want. And it's just a jumble of motivations, sometimes conflicting, where half of them want something, half of them wants something else that precludes them from getting the first thing they want. They have to pick a lane here. And Kim literally picks a lane in the last scene. But it's been a struggle for them to do that. I genuinely think at this point in Jimmy's ideal world, like... He's with Kim. She's doing pro bono. He gets his respect back at the courthouse. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I think that that's something he wants. Yeah. Even if it's still clients who are putting out cigarettes on the armchair, like, at least he's making a legitimate living. Yeah. But they're also just hooked on the heist to some extent. All right. We have to zoom through a couple things really quickly. Um, I mentioned before, the film crew is back. I don't know why they have a sound guy for a stage photograph, but... (laughs) It's a a package deal. It's a fun fun mystery. He's got his boom mic for no reason there. (laughs) Mike in the laundry already mentioned, I just want to mention that he, when he's running down like who, where his guys are, uh, when Tyrus is running them down, uh, he mentioned the Vargas of poultry shop. So he's mm-hmm. looking out. He's looking out for Nacho's dad. Will that come back into play if Lalo comes back into town or when Lalo comes back to town? Lalo, I mean, the scene was fine. Uh, he sort of played out sort of how we expected that he followed the clues to find one of Werner's men. Seems like he's going to get some info out of the guy before he bleeds out. Hopefully, possibly the move with the razor blade was classic Lalo uh, mm-hmm. cunning. Great stuff. Overall, I mean, I'm pleased to spend time with Tony Dalton, but I wasn't like electrified by it. How did mm-hmm. how did you feel? Yeah, it's sort of an Ozark blue coloring in yeah. this scene. I G- was wondering blue, yeah. where they shot this, where they found somewhere close to Albuquerque that was wooded in this way. It was interesting that Lalo is not invulnerable, right? Like he does actually maybe break a rib here mm-hmm. and Casper gets the drop on him quickly. Mm-hmm. Normally he's just been so superhuman that it seems like, you know, no one can can catch him unawares but he does at least very briefly here although he very quickly recovers as well it seems like there's another way that this scene could have gone potentially a, a less violent way but it seemed like Casper was kind of primed for someone to be coming for him maybe because of Mike's warnings you know don't tell anyone super secret signing an NDA ironclad maybe he's been expecting someone to come <laughs> after him here but this is like me just... when I watch a Disney screener <laughs> yeah right <laughs> It's just, you know, it goes back to the he was worth 50 of you lines. Like you can see how concerned he is for Margareta, right? Like clearly there's some concern there because he thinks Lalo might have killed her. So, yeah, I mean, we can see Lalo following the leads here and we know where those leads lead in theory. So you come at the fring, you best not miss, I guess, right? But we know he's going to, which still I'm just sort of puzzled about where this all ends, where the suspense is, what world there is, where Lalo could possibly 
get away with this or survive? Like, you know, forget about all the lines in Breaking Bad about the last of the Salamancas and all of that. But just think about like Gus's mental state. Right now, he's so on edge because he knows or strongly suspects that Lalo is out there. That's not who he is in Breaking Bad. So at some point, it seems like he must get confirmation that Lalo is not a threat to him anymore. And one imagines that it's because he wiped that threat off the board personally. So it just, it seems like that's where it's leading. I'm just not that interested if Lalo's like poured into concrete in the super lab or something like that. That's not a cool, satisfying ending to me. Again, as as Chris and Andy said, and as we've said before, like I have so much enormous amount of faith in these writers. So that's the thing. Yeah. I expect to be surprised. Like, you know, we're, we're tracing out what we think the blueprint of D-Day is and how it could go right and how it could go wrong. I'm totally ready to be wrong about a lot of those things or to fail to foresee something because that is generally the way it works in the Gilligan verse. One last tidbit before we get into sort of like next time on uh, analysis, Jimmy is going to buy a bottle of the Safira Anejo tequila. Mm-hmm. And the clerk makes a point to mention how very sharp the <laughs> yeah. stopper on the bottle is. <laughs> did you interpret that as this could be a weapon or did you interpret it less literally? Just, hey, this is a, a symbol of their relationship. And maybe right. that relationship Careful. Can, can cut them It'll somehow. bite yeah. you. Uh, right. I don't know. I hope, it, I hope it's the latter, not the yeah, former. We'll that see. stood out to me too. And a couple other quick things. In the Kaylee stargazing scene, which is very brief, by the way, <laughs> like very I know they have sweet. time constraints yeah. here, but you lug that whole telescope out there for one minute. You just yeah. get your glimpse of Jupiter and then it's bedtime. It's tough. But she says, you know, she's looking at the stars. It reminded me of Werner's last lines, right? There's so many stars visible in New Mexico, he says. And here's Kaylee actually looking at them. So is this, again, Mike trying to atone in some way? And then a couple other things in that picnic on HHM's lawn on D-Day Eve, we see a vacuum in the HHM office, right? (laughs) They're cleaning up in there. Is that that. further foreshadowing of Ed the Disappearer potentially there? Possibly. And, you know, Jimmy says toward the end, we didn't miss anything. But then they missed the cast. Yes, so of, of course. Yeah. What else did they miss? Right. Right. <laughs> what did Chamomile they know tea. I'm telling yeah, you. Exactly. That too. Right? They're just we assuming know that. They that Howard takes yeah. coffee in the morning. You'd but think, he's a right? chamomile man. <laughs> yeah. uh, so they find out that the judge has, has broken his arm. Sheer miracle. So Jimmy runs into him at the liquor store. Um, <laughs> and so that, that throws a wrench in everything. And, and that, I think, leads us into our next time on. Um, so I'm just going to give the warning that pe- for people who don't watch the next time's on or don't want to hear us speculate wildly about next week. We're just going to do that for a couple minutes here at the end. So next week's episode is called Plan and Execution. Execution has me very worried. Someone's going to die, but that's probably just reading too much into it. But what it seems like from the promo, which is like we see Jimmy and Kim scramble to redo the photo. Yeah, so they have to go get Dr. the film Screen crew. Here. Yeah, they have to go get the <laughs> film crew out of out of class. Mm-hmm. They have to. Um, it seems like the actor is maybe like a parking attendant at the courthouse. <laughs> I don't know. He's wearing like a bright green visibility vest um, mm-hmm. that I feel like that's what Mike would wear. Um, and then the drugging. Lit eerily yep. in red. More Gus versus Lalo potential showdown. Mike talking about needing a home court advantage. Is that the super lab? I don't know what we want to talk about there. And then we see Howard publicly freaking out and looking at a painting of Chuck and maybe being like, this is what happened to Chuck. This is what happened to me. I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. And Cliff looking concerned. So yep. it seems like Kim's coming back. We're going to be like a quick pace, try to frantically redo it all. It seems like it's going to work up to the point of provoking Howard. 
and then perhaps the chamomile tea comes into play. I don't know. There's an ele- other element I want to talk yeah. about in a second, uh, which is a little Reddit detective-y, but um, the creators have promised a painful cliffhanger mid-season finale. Anything you want to say about... Anything you want to say about this, Ben? Yeah, I mean, we saw Kim's mom say to her, relax, you got away with it. I don't know that anyone is going to be saying that to Kim at the end of the next episode. (laughs) I'd like that to be the case. But it seems like this will be an eventful one. It's a Tom Schnauz episode, right? And we've seen some eventful ones in the past. I think there could be a lot crammed in here. This was a short episode this week, but D-Day, the longest day, right? So this could be a long day for Jimmy and Kim. It could be a long episode or certainly an action-packed one. And it is interesting. Jimmy wants to pull the plug. Discretion is the better part of valor here. We'll wait for another day. And Kim says, what other day? It just, it has to happen now. So I do wonder how it's going to unravel. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I also wondered, you know, we didn't touch on this when we were talking about the teaser, the opener with Kim, but Mm -hmm. is there a potential for a time leap? Like, it seems like there's too much to wrap up. In the midseason finale, as you said, it seems like there's going to be a cliffhanger and probably we will pick up at least part of the second half of the season. We'll still be in this pre-Breaking Bad timeline. But at what point do we take the leap? Because we've got to take the leap at some point. They've been leaving these breadcrumbs with Gene and the Sun of Cinnabon going back to the beginning. There was a purpose to that. And personally, I'd like a lot of that second half, that back half to be set either during or my preference after Breaking Bad, picking up with these characters, any of the surviving characters, hopefully Kim among them. And so that's why I wondered, maybe the Kim opener, partly that's a reminder that, hey, she just happens to be from Nebraska, right? And Very true. We got the Nebraska license plate. Yeah. Yeah. Gene is in his Omaha Cinnabon. So does that mean that after being disbarred or after getting out of prison or whatever happens to Kim, she goes home, she reconnects with her mom, you know, now that she's a a convict, (laughs) maybe they'll get along great. She'll be so proud. I always knew it. You had it in you. Wow. But if she goes home and Gene is in the area, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe they connect and maybe there is still some redemption in the offing for these characters. I do. I mean, Chris and Andy mentioned this, but I, I, we have long wanted this, that Kim is around in the Gene timeline because we believe in love. Um, But I think that something that I forgot to say earlier and I wanted to was this idea of like the reason the season is split this way, it seems like, is so that um, Better Call Saul, which was delayed mightily due to COVID, COVID, could qualify for the Emmys this year, right? So mm-hmm. if you if they drop these this first half of the season um, before the cutoff, which is May thirty first, that means they're eligible for the Emmys. And not only that, but like in the way that like Stranger Things is also doing this, they're going to be finishing up their season while people are voting for the Emmys, and that's an advantage that a lot of shows, you know. The TV landscape gets really crowded in May because everyone's trying to get their premiere Mm -hmm. in before that. But the real sweet spot is if you can still make your eligibility and have your show being talked about while people are voting. The king of this move last year was Ted Lasso, which premiered Mm. its second season while people were voting about the first season of Ted Lasso. That was like a genius move. And so I only bring all this Emmy strategery up to say the decision to split the season here may have nothing to do with an artistic decision. So though it will end on a painful cliffhanger, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're supposed to think of it as volume one, volume two in such a discreet way. Do you know? Mm -hmm. It's like 
this is logistical and awards focused more than it is we see this as one holistic half of the season and this is another holistic half of the season. So just thinking about expectations that way in terms of the finale, that's just something that I've been trying to temper for myself, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. And another thing that Chris and Andy brought up is, you know, did they stretch? Was it AMC saying, hey, we want more episodes here? And that's why they've kind of been slow peddling the reveal here. I guess that's possible. I mean, I'd like to think that they have these things plotted out at least a season in advance because the pandemic gave them more time to write than they usually had. I'd like to think that it was not just let's twiddle our thumbs here so that AMC has a few more filled slots on the schedule, but you never know. It is also, I think, an on move to to see like a few uh, like untested writers or like let's let the cast direct like here and here at the end of it all <laughs> right. I, you know it let just every actor like... <laughs> take a turn behind the camera <laughs> yeah so i don't know questions all right <laughs> this is the last thing that it's not a spoiler but it's just like a little extra textual information that like really if you don't want it you should jump off um but i i do want to mention <laughs> That uh, at the end of last year, I think it's December 2021, Bob Odenkirk posted a photo on his Instagram to wish actor Patrick Fabian a happy birthday. And in it, we see Patrick's in his Howard costume and he's got blood on his head. And it is definitely the same costume he's wearing in the promo for next week's episode. It's a woven tie and a pink shirt, not his usual blue with the white collar. It's a pink with the white collar. It's a very distinctive look for him. The same look, but distinctive. (laughs) Is it a fatal amount of blood? Doesn't look necessarily fatal. It looks like maybe the amount of blood you might get from the sharp top of a tequila bottle or I don't know of a fall from some height. I don't know. Like, I don't know if Howard dies or if he or if him just bleeding from his head is enough for Kim and or Jimmy to be like, holy shit, maybe we should not have drugged someone. <laughs> I don't know. What do you what do you think of, of it? That's some deep sleuthing. Well spotted. <laughs> it's a callback. Yeah, maybe it's just a nosebleed. Let's let's uh, assume it's just a nosebleed, a nice <laughs> non fatal nosebleed. Yeah, that photo's been going around for a while and I I was like finally able to source it. I was like, who posted this? Who who would dare to post a photo of a character in a final season of a television show where people died with blood on their head? And it was yeah. Mr. Bob Odenkirk ah, himself. Bob, so the leaker. Yeah. He sleeps six ships. <laughs> um, all right. So that's that's something that we're nervous about for next week. Uh, painful cliffhanger coming our way. Anything else you want to say, Ben Lindbergh, before we go? No. Let's sidebar in the law library. All right. I will bring the... the, the the nice lattes, not uh, the <laughs> shitty courthouse coffee, I promise. Uh, we'll be back next week with the finale. Uh, we'll have a special guest for that episode. And this episode was produced by Chris Sutton. See you next week.